You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Meals are an important part of each of our lives. We all know this. We spend a good portion of, of our, our time eating, so some of us maybe a little more than others, um, and we eat for a number of reasons. I like that, a hand went up. I eat more than everybody else. Uh, we, we eat for a number of reasons, right? We eat because, because of health. If we didn't eat, we would die. That's the way God made it. Um, we also eat because, uh, for the sake of taste. So God has given us uh, senses to not just partake in food uh, for, for sustenance, but also to enjoy delicious meals. This is why we have, each of us have different favorite meals. It's because of how they taste and smell, right, when we partake. Um, we also know that relationships are formed around meals. Sure, you could think of times when you have grown in friendship through conversation over a meal, through, through laughter, through telling stories and jokes, um, even through weeping, right? Often that happens around meals. We deepen in relationship with uh, one another. We also, we also celebrate through meals. We sort of mark occasions by going out to eat or, or having feasts, right? I think of, I don't know why I remember this, but when I graduated high school, we went to Bahama Breeze in Alpharetta, Georgia, and I had the jerk chicken, and it was delicious, right? Or what will we, what will we do in a, in a few weeks as, you know, Americans? We will celebrate Thanksgiving by eating a turkey, most of us, some of us maybe don't like turkey, some of us do that crazy thing where we, we eat the turkey with the duck and the chicken all inside. Nothing says America like that, right? We, we celebrate around meals. We do all, all sorts of things around meals. So it's, it's no surprise then, because God's wired us this way, that when we come to the Bible, we see a book that talks a lot about meals. A lot about feasts and partaking in food. The Bible actually begins with an invitation from God to, to Adam and Eve to do what? To eat of what he's provided. We see also that sin enters the world shortly after that through what? Through a forbidden meal. We fast forward to the end of the Bible, what, what do we see? We get this future vision and revelation of Christ sharing a meal, a banquet with his people. The Bible begins and ends with a meal. And this morning in our Exodus series, as we come to chapters 11 and 12, we see the establishment, I don't think this, this isn't an understatement, we see the establishment of the most important meal in the Old Testament, the Passover meal. And if we fast forward and sort of trace the meaning of this Passover meal, we see that it's a meal that Jesus later transformed into the Lord's Supper, the night before his death, which is then the most important meal of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. Tim Chester uh, writes this of, of the Passover. He says, the Passover became the identifying practice of, of Israel. It was their theological education. Each Passover, children were to ask about its significance, and the story would be retold. 
And through this meal, they understood the nature of their God and their own identity. He says this of the Passover. This is theology served up on the meal table. And friends, as, as, as we come to this text this morning, we are like those children that Chester talks about. Right? We're, we're asking, what is the significance of this meal? We too are reminding ourselves of how God provided redemption so that we too can understand both the nature of God, who is God, and our own identity as those who hopefully have received his redemption. And I would submit to you that more than any other celebration, right, more than any other graduation lunch or your favorite meal or any sort of celebration like that, this meal is the most significant meal in your life. Why? Because it shows us how we are redeemed. It shows us how we can taste and see the goodness of God and who he is. So as we journey through this passage this morning, uh, let me try and sum up these two chapters. There's a lot going on here. We're taking in a lot of text, but I'm going to try and sum it up in one sentence. The Passover meal was a ritual of remembrance that established God's people as a new community through a substitute. It's chapters 11 and 12 in a sentence. The Passover meal was a ritual of remembrance that established God's people as a new people through a substitute. So three things as we journey through this text this morning that I want us to see that I think the text is pointing out to us. First, we see a ritual of remembrance. Ritual of remembrance. Second, we see a new community and third, we see a substitute. A ritual of remembrance, a new community, and a substitute. So let's jump in. Number one, a ritual of remembrance. Now, by way of reminder, last week we looked, Pastor Clint looked at the first nine plagues from God against Egypt. And we pick up right where we left off, and the tenth and final act of judgment from God is coming against Egypt so that he will deliver his people out of slavery to worship him. And let me back up a little bit from, from where Nate just read. But if you look at chapter 11, it, it, gives this, it foretells of this, this coming plague, this final plague. 11 verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he'll drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle shall die. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. That's the foretelling of it. And then, when we actually look at chapter 12, and we see this plague come, it's, a, it's very short and straightforward. Just two verses. 12 verses 29 and 30 says this. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Now again, this is a weighty text, isn't it? It's a weighty truth, a weighty plague. All the previous plagues pale in comparison to this final act from the Lord. Every firstborn male, so, so the heir of every family, was killed in judgment. And the, the modern reader sort of cringes at a, at a passage like this. We have to stop and remember. Let's not forget how patient the Lord has been up to this point, right? This is not the first plague or the second plague or the third plague, right? This is the tenth plague. The Lord has been slow to anger, to Pharaoh. He's patiently warned him. Pharaoh's received numerous chances to repent, but he's refused to humble himself. So now the Lord, who is holy and just and righteous and loves his people, the Lord humbles Pharaoh and the entire nation through the death of the firstborn sons. Now this is sort of an aside to the main theme of the passage, but this is an important lesson for us, friends. Everyone will one day be humbled before the Lord. The question is, not will we be humbled, the question is, will you be humbled by his gracious patience now, or will you be humbled by his righteous judgment later? Pharaoh chose the latter. So this final plague comes, and he is humbled. Egypt is humbled. Now, it's also important to note that Israel was not exempt from this final plague. They didn't get get a free pass on this. So what does the Lord do? He gives them this ritual to follow in order to prepare for this night when the plague is going to come, when when he's going to send an angel, text calls him a destroyer, to kill the firstborn of every household. And he gives these Passover instructions. And and what did the Lord instruct them to do? Well, the first thing he tells them to do is to take a lamb without blemish. If you have your Bibles, you can look at chapter 12, verse 3. It says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for, uh, for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Now, why did the lamb need to be spotless or without blemish? That's the first instruction. Take a lamb without blemish. Why? Because it was representative of purity from sin. Without blemish equals pure from sin. So the lamb without blemish shows us something. It shows us that God is holy and mankind is sinful. That's why the Israelites were not automatically exempt from this final plague. Because they too like the Egyptians, were sinners before a holy and just God. 
They too deserved just punishment for their sins. Like Paul sums it up for us well in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. See, thus far, as we sort of looked at this story in Exodus, it's very easy to see the story as Pharaoh in uh, the Egyptians versus Israel with God on their side. And that's very true. And when you, when you put it that way, Pharaoh is the abuser and Israel is the abused, the victim, right? Pharaoh's the perpetrator. Israel and the people enslaved are the victims, which is absolutely true. And Exodus certainly teaches that. But what God is showing us here is there is actually a greater perspective. Not Israel versus Egypt and Pharaoh, but God versus sinful mankind, right? You see, God is not just dealing with Israel's slavery problem. If that were true, he could easily just have sent them out of Egypt. He is dealing also with their sin problem. And if he's going to deal with their sin problem, he can't just sweep it under the rug because he is a just and holy God. So they too, sinful Israel, must take a lamb without blemish because their hearts are blemished by sin. So God then, he instructs them to to kill the lamb without blemish as a sacrifice. And then what are are they to do? They're to put the blood from this spotless lamb that was slain. And they're to take a hyssop branch, which functioned really well as a brush. And they're to paint it on the doorposts of their house. Verse 7. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Friends, if you're looking for a summary verse of what's happening here, it's Exodus 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall befall you or destroy you. I want you to just try, and this is so foreign to us in our culture, so just imagine the scenario. You're a child in a household in Israel, and on this evening, your your dad, maybe around four or five o'clock, kills and prepares this this lamb, and he drains the blood in a a basin, and he, he takes the hyssop branch as a brush, as the lamb's being roasted, he, he dips it in the blood and he starts painting it on the doorposts of the house and on the lintel. It, it's an act that declares, this home has heard and believes the word of the Lord. We obey the word of the Lord. Your father roasts the lamb and, and while doing so, he tells you and your siblings and the rest of your family to, to gather your things, to get dressed and ready to go because we're going to travel very soon and in haste. 
And then when everything is ready, you, you sit down and you, you eat the meal together. You eat the roasted lamb. You eat the, the bitter herbs, which likely represents, is meant to represent the bitterness of slavery for all those years for God's people. And you eat the unleavened bread. It's unleavened because the meal is prepared in a hurry. And then you, fully clothed, ready to go, you try to get some sleep. But you can't because you're anxious. Eventually, you doze off, and then around midnight, you wake up because you start hearing, off in the distance, screams and wailing. And you're, you're terrified. You're just a kid. What, what's going on? You start crying. Yet mom and dad, they come in to comfort you and your siblings, and you're, you're worried, you don't know what's going on, it's been explained to you, it still doesn't make sense, and your father says, there's no need to worry, we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Deliverance is coming. You see, the blood was placed on the door as a sign and seal, or you could even say a payment as the destroyer was passing through Egypt. The Lord was judging sin with death. So blood was going to be shed either way. As the author of Hebrews later says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or removal of sin. The question is, whose blood? Will it be your blood? Or will it be the blood of another to cover you so that you may be passed over? Now Moses, as he's recounting this, if you, if you look at the text, he's doing two things here. First, he's just telling the narrative of the story, right? But also, he's also teaching his, his initial readers of the Pentateuch. And he's teaching them that this is something that is to be done repeatedly. It's to be kept as a ritual of remembrance. We're, we're to clearly keep this is what Exodus, what Moses tells him. Look at verse 14. He says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, a day of remembrance, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Then verse 24 of chapter 12, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. He's establishing, he's not just telling a story of a one-time event, he's establishing a ritual of remembrance. Now what is to be remembered in the Passover? So many things, but let me sum it up this way. What's to be remembered in the Passover is this, the holiness of God, the seriousness of sin, and the gracious provision of salvation that God offers. That's the remembrance that's happening. Now, we all know what can happen with rituals in our lives, right? They can easily lose their meaning to us, can't they? And this, this certainly happens in, in Israel's history. I was going through my Bible reading plan this, this week, reading of Josiah, one of those few good kings, and God brought revival through the ministry of Josiah. And, and what did Josiah have to do? He had to restore the, the Passover because it was completely forgotten. Or it was done but without any concern for God. Now what does Jesus later say when he sits down for the Passover meal the night before his death? He transforms the Passover meal. And he breaks the body the bread as his representative of his body, he pours out the cup as representative of his blood. He calls us to eat and drink and do this what? In remembrance of him. As a ritual of remembrance. 
Friends, this is easy for us because this is something we do every single week, right? It's easy for us to lose sight of what is happening in the Lord's Supper. And we'll come to, in a moment, how Christ fulfills that as a substitute. But let me just, let's just pause and ask ourselves, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, are you remembering those things? Are you remembering the holiness of God? The seriousness of your, your own sin before Him? And are you remembering that He and He alone gives the gracious provision of salvation? Friends, that's a great question to ask, not just of the Lord's Supper, but of all the religious rituals in our life, like worshiping every Lord's Day, like opening up our Bibles or, or, or praying. I hope you partake in those things regularly. But friends, are, are we merely walking through the ritual without considering the holiness of God, the seriousness of our sin, and the grace of salvation? That's the first thing we see in, in this Passover meal. It is a, a ritual of remembering our need and God's greatness and his salvation. A ritual of remembrance. Number two, we also see a new community. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verses, uh, starting verse 33. What happens after this 10th this plague? It says, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leaven, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. People of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Verse 40, at that time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Now, if you've been with us so far in our Exodus series, the earlier chapters of Exodus, this is the moment we've been waiting for, right? This is victory. This is like uh, when Luke shoots the torpedo into the Death Star, right? Or when Daniel's son does the crane kick. With me? George McFly punches Biff. I can keep going all day with the movie references. Right? But th- this, is, this is victory. Yahweh has defeated the enemy. He's delivered his people. And by the way, everything he said would happen back in chapter 3 happens. They plunder the Egyptians. God provides for them that way. Pharaoh's humbled. God's glory is displayed. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. His word is never broken. But, But notice this. This is not merely the end of slavery 
for Israel. It's the beginning of something new. It's the beginning of a new nation, a new community of the people of God. So through the Passover and Exodus, he is, God is creating a new nation. This is why back in chapter 12, verse 2, which we read earlier, says this, is, uh, this month is to be the first month of your year. He's saying this starts the calendar for this new nation that I'm creating. You see, in the Passover, the blood on the doorposts was not only an act of faith from Israel saying, Lord, we trust you to save us. We trust in this sacrifice. But it it was also a visible sign to those around them. It also said, listen, we are a people who trusts the, the Lord. And as certain Egyptians watched, what happens? They too see something about the greatness of God. Verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. In other words, apparently there were non-Israelite, pagan Egyptians witnessing the power of God, witnessing God consistently defeat their idols, and so they start following him. And this is why, by the way, at the end of chapter 12, Moses gives instructions for strangers, meaning foreigners, who want to worship God and keep the Passover. Because this mixed multitude was following them. Now this is, this is amazing to think, because if you zoom back out and remember the, God, the promise that God gave to Abraham, we're seeing it already come to fulfillment, right? Through you, Abraham, through the nation that will come from you, all nations will be blessed. And that continues to happen and comes to full fruition in the new covenant through Jesus Christ who builds his church. God is building this new community. Listen to what Peter says to us, the church in 1 Peter 2, 9. He's referencing a a, a later part in Exodus, chapter 19, I believe. But Peter, if you read Peter's epistles, he loves the book of Exodus. And so he says this, 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Friends, I think this is one of the, one of the reasons that the Passover and the, the more realized the Lord's Supper are meals because meals are meant to be communal activities, right? Now, don't get me wrong. You can eat alone. You can do that. But isn't, isn't it much better to, to share meals with others? There's a, there's a natural communal aspect to it that God has wired in, into it, into, ta- into partaking of meals. And the same is true of the Passover, and the same is true of the Lord's Supper. And our culture is so, is so highly individualized, I'm influenced by this as well, that we, we miss this. Yes, our salvation in Christ is first vertical, meaning it's God saving us. Absolutely, our salvation is personal, it's us and God related, but do you notice also that Christ saves us from our sin, but, but he also brings us into a family. So the salvation that we have, the deliverance that Israel had, and the salvation that we have in Christ is not merely vertical, it's also horizontal. It's not just me and God, it's me and God and his people. And, and when, you, when you come to 1 Corinthians 10, 
and you see Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper, he says this exact thing. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. He says, verse 16, The cup of blessing that we give thanks for, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? This is vertical. Us in God, in Christ. The bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Paul's saying, listen, when you partake of the cup, representing the, the shed blood of the, the true and greater Passover lamb, you're being reminded of Christ who saved you personally by his shed blood. Then he says in verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For all of us share in that one bread. Paul's saying, listen, when we participate in this ritual of remembrance, the Lord's Supper, our Passover lamb who has been slain, we're also remembering that Christ has formed us together into a new people, a new family. See, just as this blood-marked people was a powerful witness to Egypt, to those who are watching this, so the new community of the church is a powerful witness to our lonely world that longs for connection and relationship. I'm, I'm an only child biologically, which means a lot of things. It means I'm kind of weird, but, but you know what's, what's so encouraging to me as I think of my, my faith, my life? I'm an only child, but I have in Christ, I have brothers, I have sisters, I have mothers and fathers. I, I have people who surround me as my family. And the blood we share in our veins may be different, but what unites us, even though there's all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, interests, some, some, some of my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm like, I know we wouldn't be friends in high school. Right? You'd probably try and beat me up. But what do we have in common? We have the most important thing in common. We who are in Christ, we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. This forms a new community. We've been called out of the darkness of our slavery to sin into the light of freedom in Christ. I was reminded this week that throughout church history, churches started painting the doors of the church entrance red. Maybe you guys have seen this. Uh, our, our friends, you know, a church we love dearly, our sister church, uh, Hope Fellowship in Cambridge, Pastor Curtis, they got a beautiful historic white building, bright red door. Why did they do that? It was a way to communicate, listen, the way into the family of God, the way into this community is not anything you do. It's not where you're from. It's not what you have to bring to the table. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. You enter through the blood. The new community is a mixed multitude of people, but we share the most important thing in common. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified for us. He's welcomed us in by his blood. And someone might say, well, okay, I hear you, Kevin, but you don't know about my past. You don't know about what I've done. Well, friend, do you believe in Christ and his sufficient sacrifice for you? If the answer is yes, then you're covered. Welcome. Or you may say, okay, well, shouldn't I like clean my life up first? 
Right? I know you're saying the blood of Christ cleanses us, but don't I need to sort of get things together first before I, I enter into this community? Nope, that's not how it works. This community has been formed not by anything you and I could say or do, but any righteous works we, can, we think we can bring to the table. It's formed and purchased by the blood of the Lamb. One of my favorite hymns, The Church is One Foundation, written by Samuel Johnstone, says this, The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. In the Passover, which points us to Christ, we see not only a ritual of remembrance, we see a forming of a new community, a mixed multitude of those covered by the blood. And then third and finally, and perhaps most importantly, when we look to the Passover, we see a substitute. We can sum up uh, the Passover in one Christian doctrine. Right? We're going to do a little mini theology lesson here this morning. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Now what does that phrase mean? In the Passover, the spotless lamb is a substitute for the people of Israel. We've seen that already. Blood must be shed for sin against the holy God's punishable by death. So what did God do? He provided a lamb for this sacrifice in the place of the firstborn sons of Israel. That's what substitute means, right? In the place of. What does the word atonement mean? It means to be reconciled or to be made one with. Real simple way to, to understand what atonement means is to pronounce the word at one meant. Right? Atonement, at one meant. Being brought back into relationship, in this case, with God. Substitutionary atonement tells us the only way sinners like you and I can be reconciled to a holy God is if a substitute takes on the just punishment from God for sin on our behalf. And again, if there's one verse that summarizes this well in this passage, it's chapter 12, verse 13. The Lord says, when I see the blood, not your blood, when I see the blood of the lamp, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you. That is substitutionary atonement in Exodus chapter 12. That's what the lamb accomplishes at Passover, and that is what Christ accomplished fully and completely on his cross. Now, it's, it's really important for us to understand this, I think, as we journey through Exodus. You see, the Exodus has been, throughout church history, it's been sort of a, a paradigm for liberation from earthly oppression. And that's good and right. That's a good and right way to understand the Exodus. We see this in the Reformers. In the 16th century, they spoke of it in terms of, they, they looked to the Exodus and, and saw what was happening in the Reformation as being delivered, sort of an Exodus from what they called popish slavery. It's a nice phrase. The English Puritans in the 17th century, they looked at the Civil War in England and they saw it as an Exodus. The emancipation movements in the 1800s did this as well. The civil rights movement last century uh, looked off into the exodus and, and drew upon this as this paradigm for being delivered from earthly sufferings. And let me just say, please don't mishear me, that is a good and right application of exodus. But 
it's not complete. And it's not the ultimate application here. If so, there would be no Passover. And here's why. Our ultimate problem is not undesirable present conditions. Our ultimate problem as sinners is the just wrath and righteous anger of a holy God against us. Now, some may say, oh, you sort of cringe at that. That sounds bad, right? Isn't, isn't God loving? You're talking about wrath and judgment that he pours out? And now you're telling me he poured that out on his son? Yes. That's exactly what the scriptures teach. Because not only is God loving, and he is absolutely loving, but he is also just and holy. So the big question for us is, okay, how do I reconcile those two things? The love of God and the just holiness of God. And the answer is substitutionary atonement. Let me use a classic illustration that's really helped me over the years. I don't know where this originated from, but imagine you're driving and you're, you're in a hurry. I know none of you go over the speed limit. So just imagine that you do, and you're driving like 110. Yeah, some of you are like, whoa. Some of you are like, that's eh, not that bad, right? And you get pulled over, rightfully so. And because of how, how much you were speeding, your car's immediately impounded, you're thrown in the back of the car, and you're taken straight to the courthouse. Now, here, there's, you start realizing, okay, there's some good news here, because I, I, I was arrested in, in the county where my dad is the judge. So you go, okay, all right. This, this, could, this could work out well for me. He might, he might let me off easily. But as you're entering the courthouse, you remember something. My dad's a good judge. He, he never punishes the innocent, and he always deals with the guilty justly. And all of a sudden, you start to get nervous, right? Because you know you're guilty. You, you go in the courthouse, and you stand before him, and, and he, he looks at everything, and the, he, you know, he says, the officer says you're going 50 miles per hour over the speed limit. And he says a bunch of dad stuff that I won't say here. But he says, how do you plead? And you know you're caught. You know you can't plead any other way. So you plead guilty. And your father says, okay, you're guilty. That'll be a $1,000 fine or one week in jail. And you have absolutely no way to pay that fine. You have no money. You have uh, no savings, no nothing. And so the bailiff comes over to you. And he starts to put the, the cuffs on you and to take you to serve your sentence. And just as that happens, the judge, your father, steps down, walks down from behind the bench, and he reaches into his coat pocket, and he pulls out a checkbook, and he writes the court a check for $1,000, and he pays your fine. Now, now what's, what's happening here is this. The judge is just, so he rightfully declares you guilty. You can't just sweep that under the rug. He would not be a just judge if that were the case. He demands that the penalty will be paid. But also, he's your father and he loves you. So not only does he give you the just sentence, he also pays the penalty himself on your behalf. Friends, that is what happens at Passover. God is both just in executing judgment and the justifier by providing the spotless lamb. But here's the problem for you and I. Right? 
even though the Passover meal provided a substitute, it was not enough. It had to be continually kept. Or if you look at other, the sacrificial system, the Day of Atonement, those sacrifices had to be continual day after day, year after year, because they could never fully pay the price for our sin until the true and greater spotless lamb, the once for all sacrifice, as the author of Hebrews calls him, until he came, Jesus Christ, and paid the price for us. Revelation 13 verse 8 tells us that Jesus had the title, the lamb that was slain. He had that title before the foundation of the world, telling us this was always God's plan for our salvation. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Christ? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. Or 1 Peter 118, knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. Or if you want the shortest summary of this in the Bible, take Jesus' final words on the cross in John 19.30. It is finished. The once for all sacrifice has been paid by the lamb and all who believe are covered. Now, I just want to enclose, give you a few brief but extremely significant applications of this. Consider what this means for us. How often are you and I, friends, tormented with guilt and shame because of sins we've committed? How often do we cower in fear wondering, man, is God, is God going to drop the hammer of judgment on me? Well, friend, if you have trusted in Christ, the Lord says, I have seen the blood of Christ. No plague will destroy you. You're mine. You're forgiven and free. No more guilt, no more shame, no more fear. Or maybe it's not your own sin. Maybe you've been sinned against. Grievously. The substitutionary atonement shows us that God hates that sin that hurts you. That sin is so heinous that blood must be shed to pay for it. You don't need to let bitterness fester. Why? Because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Either the blood of Christ will pay for their sin or they will pay. Even more, you can reflect on the substitutionary death of Christ on your behalf in a way that softens your own heart and keeps you from becoming bitter towards others. It can cultivate forgiveness in you because you are amazed at what God has done for you by putting forward his son as a substitute. And then finally, the greatest blessing that we get of this substitute, this Passover lamb, is a relationship with God. There's a counselor named Patty Withers, and she puts it this way. She says, access to the Father is perhaps one of the sweetest and most comforting implications of penal substitutionary atonement. The struggling Christian needs to be reminded that the door to the Father has been flung open wide for them by the death of Christ. Gone is the wrath we deserved, absorbed by Jesus' death. 
And in its place is a warm invitation to come. Because of the sacrificial work of Christ, the writer of Hebrews encourages us to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So friends, let's behold the Passover lamb, our crucified Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's receive him by faith.